Father, we come to you this morning in the name that holds everything together. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we settle our hearts before you today. And as we pray, we do not pray out of formality. We pray with intentionality to invite you to speak directly to our hearts and our minds for the purposes of transformation, restoration, and spiritual growth. We pray, Lord, that what we encounter in your word today would be like fresh manna, and that through it we would have the ability and desire to see you more clearly, follow you more nearly, and love you more dearly. Strengthen us and give us hearts, Lord, that are deeply interested in the truths of your word, because as your word says, everything in this life will eventually fade away, but the word of God will endure forever. And I pray that as your church here at Frontline, we would learn your word, we would love it, and gladly share it with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Amen. So church, this morning as we move into the word and as we spend time together in the scriptures, we are going to pause from our series Revealing Jesus for a couple of weeks to focus on a message series that I've titled, Keep Your Eyes on Israel. This is a series that I wanted to bring in at some point during the book of Revelation because of its prophetic importance and how it relates specifically to all these significant end-time events that we are going to unpack as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. I wasn't quite sure exactly when to do this, but considering what has happened over the past eight days in the land of Israel and the possible prophetic consequences of these events, I felt led to drop everything and focus on this now. There are times as a preacher that you know that you have to speak about certain pressing issues, and as much as you try and sidestep these types of messages because of the intense study that is required, you know that you're just delaying the inevitable Because if the Lord is leading you in a specific direction, you just have to be obedient and He will work out the rest. Because He knows what His church needs to hear and when they need to hear it. Amen? Amen. So church, let me start by asking you, who has heard about what happened and watched some of the footage from the terrorist attacks that took place last Saturday morning in parts of southern Israel? The terrorist groups, this terrorist group Hamas launched an attack from the Gaza Strip, and started off by firing thousands of rockets at Israel. By the way, this was a significant day in in Israel's calendar because firstly, it was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. They were just finishing Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. It was their Sabbath day because it was a Saturday, and they were celebrating what's called Simchat Torah, which is the end of a year of reading the Torah, and the beginning of a new year of reading the Torah. It is the most festive day in Israel's calendar and a day of great celebration. So they were completely flat-footed. Mossad, which is Israel's intelligence agency and one of the greatest intelligence agencies in the world, had no idea it was happening. The Iron Dome, which is known for intercepting missiles, didn't work on the day, It was somehow disarmed by these terrorists or those that are backing these terrorists. And so many of the rockets that would normally not get through did get through. As I understand, they attacked 50 Israeli outposts, killed Israeli soldiers, 
overtook those outposts and then broke a hole in the security wall large enough to drive vans and cars and motorbikes through. They were even using paragliders to glide through the air and dropping bombs. Roughly a thousand terrorists infiltrated the southern part of Israel and they killed women and children, elderly people, and they live streamed it while they did it. They also kidnapped over 100 people as hostages, some of which had survived the Holocaust, and took them back to Gaza and paraded them around the streets of Gaza. There are many horrific things that were done to these people that cannot be mentioned in this setting. But while they were live-streaming these atrocities, there were celebrations in Gaza, in Ramallah, in Tehran, and in many other parts of the Middle East. To date, the death toll in Israel has surged over 1,300 people, with around 4,000 wounded, of which at least 80% are civilians. This was not a heroic battle between two different militaries. It was a cowardly attack on innocent civilians who had no way of defending themselves. These are people who do not value life the same way we do. Now, church, the reason that I, I share this with you today is because there are two questions that I want us to answer together throughout this series. The first question, it's a double-barrel question. The first question I want us to answer is this. Why is Israel such an important nation to God, and why as believers should we keep our eyes on Israel? That's the first question. And secondly, when we see things like this taking place, especially in Israel, the second question we need to answer, because many people are speculative about this, we need to answer the question of, are we now officially living in the end times? Are we living in the last of the last days? An important question to answer, because if you don't answer it correctly, it can cause fear in people, even amongst believers. And now we are going to be spending time in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 today, if you'd like to find your way there. And while you're turning there, church, let me just set the stage for where we're going. In the latter sections of the book of Ezekiel, which deal primarily with end time and prophetic events, Ezekiel is writing in the mid-6th century, way back when, mid-6th century BC, but God is showing him things in the distant future. Some of the things that Ezekiel writes about have been fulfilled in your lifetime if you're old enough, and there are some things that he writes about that are yet to be fulfilled. In other words, some of the things that Ezekiel prophesied 2,500 years ago concerning end-time events went unfulfilled until relatively recently. And some things that he writes about are still to happen in our future. Now, in order to understand the prophetic end-time events that Ezekiel writes about here, we must first understand the unique and pivotal role that the nation of Israel has played in history and will play, will play in prophecy. And this is going to be helpful to us when we go back to the book of Revelation because in these latter chapters of Ezekiel, when he's talking about end-time events, he writes in chronological order so that we can see things that are going to unfold, and this speaks directly to what happens in the book of Revelation. In Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, he writes about the thousand-year millennial reign, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem itself. In Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, he writes about the climactic battle of Armageddon, 
And here in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, we find that the main theme of these chapters has to deal with the reestablishment and restoration of the nation of Israel. Because you see, church, if we go back in history, ever since the Babylonians besieged and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, which was the time in which Ezekiel lived, ever since then, for all intents and purposes, for the next 2,500 years, Israel as a nation no longer exists. They are dominated by some other foreign major power or empire and are dispersed all around the world from 586 BC until 1948 AD. The Jewish people had no exclusive homeland. They had no government and not even a common language. Because when the Jews were taken captive into Babylon, they adopted the Aramaic language of their Babylonian captives. So when they returned from captivity, they spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. Right? As we know, even Jesus spoke Aramaic. And so what we read in Ezekiel is a prophecy that starts a clock of approximately 2,500 years during which time the Jewish people would be dispersed all over the world, they would be oppressed all over the world, and they would even be massacred all over the world. And what we're going to look at today is what Ezekiel predicted in the 6th century BC about the reestablishment of the state of Israel, which actually happened in 1948. A church which is really important in our understanding of God's redemptive plan. Hold on to that thought. So let's read the first seven verses together. God says to Ezekiel, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel, and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because the enemy said of you, Aha! And the ancient hearts have become our possession. Notice here, church, that the foreign invading armies were coming and taking the land of Israel. Verse 3, therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God. Precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you became the talk and evil gossip of the people, therefore, therefore O mountains of Israel... Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and hills, the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my heart jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land, notice those words, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy, and utter contempt, that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath, because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore thus says the Lord God, I swear, and God is not a man that he should lie, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. Let's pause there for a moment. Church, what you have here is a strong rebuke for the nations around Israel that have come to take the land for themselves. Which means, number one, for those who are taking notes, that means that God denounces and condemns any nation that overtakes the land of Israel. Now, you may or may not know this, but the Jewish people are the only people on the earth 
who have been given the title deed by God to a certain piece of land on the earth, to a certain piece of real estate. And when other people try and confiscate and steal that land, God will rise up in anger against those nations. That's why he calls it my land there in verse 5, and why in verse 7 he says, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. And as I said, God is not a man that he should lie. Now, church, just so that we understand a little history here related to Israel as a nation and the Jewish people as a people, God brought the Jewish race out of nothing. There were no Jews until God decided that one gentle by the name of Abraham, originally known as Abraham, would be the source and the genesis of a people that did not yet exist. Abraham was living in the land of the Chaldeans, which is in ancient Mesopotamia and which today is known as Iraq. He's living in Iraq. He's a Gentile who worships pagan gods. And God appears to him and God speaks to him. God makes a promise to him and makes a covenant with him that out of his seed will come a race of people that up to this point never existed. It was a providential act of God And what is interesting is that he selected someone that was way past his prime. Even his wife Sarah was way past her prime and past the the childbearing age, right? But God did this so that when they had a child, everybody would know that that this had to be a miracle, not some human coincidence. Why, church? Because God is clearly about establishing something for his own glory. And out of Abraham and Sarah would come the child of a promise, the child Isaac. And God then birthed a nation, the Jewish people, through the line of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. And then God determined that in order to provide a land for this race that is created out of the seed of Abraham, he then gave the title deed of a piece of land, the area around the Mediterranean, to Abraham. And he called Abraham to leave his country in Iraq and make the journey into this land that he promised him. And thus the Jewish people were born, and the nation itself was established in terms of a boundary or a geographical region. Right, so God gave this title deed of this land to Abraham and to the children of his promised descendants. God made this covenant with Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 15 verse 18 it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now church, just so that we can get a perspective on what God actually gave to the Jewish people, have a look at this this image with me. This area with the black outline is roughly the area between the Nile River of Egypt and the Euphrates River of Iraq. Some biblical scholars believe that it probably also included all of Saudi Arabia. But just to even narrow it down to a smaller region of the region between the Nile and the Euphrates, this is the territory that God originally deeded to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 verse 18. This area is roughly 750,000 square kilometers in size, but even under rulers like King David, the nation of Israel never got to claim this much territory. Under King David, the territory of Israel was roughly 600,000 square kilometers in size. And then, of course, as I said earlier, in 568 or 586 BC, the nation of Israel is overthrown completely by the Babylonians, 
and the Jews are dispersed all over the world. You can take that down for a moment. Now, church, as of today, do you know how much land the nation of Israel actually has? In 1917, after World War I, Britain defeated the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Turks were allies of Nazi Germany, and in 1917, Britain took back this territory and declared the Balfour Declaration to establish a homeland for the Jewish people, which they had not had since 586 BC. They were originally promised a piece of land by the British Parliament much bigger than what they have now, but after the Hussein family objected to giving all of this land to the Jewish people, which was by far not at all the borders that God intended. But in order to appease the Hussein family, the British Parliament reneged on the Balfour Declaration, and Winston Churchill took a map of the region, took a crayon, and he drew a line down the Jordan River. Put that map up for us again. And he separated east from west, and he gave what you see in brown there, the little section that says the Gaza Strip and the Western Bank, he gave that to the Jewish people. And the area across the Jordan River to the Arab people. God intended the Jewish people to have a, a piece of land roughly 750,000 square kilometers in size, but today the state of Israel is 21,000 square kilometers in size, which is only 2.8% of what God intended. And as we know, even that small piece of land remains in contention. And church, it's important for us to get perspective on all of this because as I said earlier, we must understand the unique and pivotal role that the nation of Israel has played in history and will play in eschatology, despite how small that nation now is. God has a specific plan and a purpose for this nation. So to come back to the first point, God denounces any nation that tries to take possession of the land of Israel, and he says, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach because of what they've done. That's the first thing. And number two, this is important, God defends the land of Israel for his own namesake. For his own namesakes. Look a bit further in chapter 36, and let's read verses 22 to 28. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Remember, he's talking prophetically here. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. 
So church, what's important to note here is that God is not doing something for Israel for their sake. He's doing something for Israel for his sake. He's not doing something for their name, but for his name. You see, the fact of the matter is that the Israelites had blown their testimony. They started worshiping the pagan idols of their neighbors around them. And in this way, God says, you've profaned my name before them. You've exchanged the worship of the true and living God for the worship of idols, just like your foreign neighbors. And because of that, there is a consequence. But you know what's astounding here, church? Despite how they had fallen, God says, I love you. I'm going to bring you back into this land. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to restore you. And this is truly an amazing thing that God does on a national scale for the nation of Israel. Right? And the reason that I say that is because, you know, in a micro sense, God does the same thing for us. You know, if we just bring this close to home for a moment and make it personal, we sin against God. We rebel against Him, and what does God do? He is patient with us. He is long-suffering with us, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then He is waiting for us patiently, and with open arms, He receives us and forgives us and restores us. That's the story of God. That's the story of redemption. Amen? Amen, somebody. God does it for us on a personal level and does it here for the nation of Israel on a national level. This is a testimony of God before the nations that He is a forgiving God and that He is a restoring God. Praise God for that. Which leads us to point number three. God declares Himself to all the nations through the reestablishment of Israel. Let's read verses 34 through 36. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replaced that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Now, church, what is this telling us? This is telling us that in the 2,500 years from the time that Israel was dispersed in 586 BC and the temple was destroyed, the land of Israel became desolate and barren. The lush fields, vineyards, and mountains would not yield fruit or vegetation anymore. It would just become a dry and barren wasteland. Because it was uninhabited and the land itself was ruled by these foreign empires that didn't invest in it or take care of it. Right? It was completely desolate. Now, you may be thinking, but it was the land of milk and honey, right? How did that happen? You may say, but surely it couldn't have been that bad. Surely there was something there of value. Well, interestingly, Mark Twain, who was a famous American author, he made a visit to Israel, the greater Israel, in 1867. And he would later write a description about what he saw. This is what he said. He said, We traversed many miles of desolate country, whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse, a desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. 
we never saw a human being on the whole route. The further we went, the hotter the sun got, and the more rocky and bare the landscape became. There was hardly a tree or shrub anywhere, even the olive and the cactus. Those fast friends of a worthless soil had almost deserted the country. That's what Mark Twain wrote after visiting Israel in 1867, the land originally given to God's people. That's a fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy here. The church, you know what else is the fulfillment of prophecy recorded by Ezekiel? In 1947, excuse me, 1948, the Jewish people went back to this land. And even though they were now limited to 21,000 square kilometers of area instead of the intended 750,000 square kilometers, Israel has become one of the most prosperous and prolific nations on the planet. And that's why God says in verse 35, and they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. You know, in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6, Isaiah prophesied that in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Church, did you know that Israel today is the number one exporter of fruit to Europe? A nation which, by the way, is just larger than our province, Gauteng, is now the number one exporter of fruit in Europe. Israel is also one of the world's leading greenhouse food exporting countries because, as you may or may not already know, the Jews developed drip, uh, drip irrigation. They developed this watering system and turned the desert into fertile fields. They are leaders in many different industries around the world. And when you look at the Jewish history, the emergence of this nation out of just a barren wasteland, where not only the land itself was desolate, but the people had been scattered, oppressed, and, and massacred all over the world. When you consider that reality, church, and the short history of that state, there is no other explanation for the preservation and restoration of the Jewish people and the state of Israel as a nation, except by the divine hand and work of God. Amen. Amen. You know, most Christians up until 1948 thought that Ezekiel's prophecy wasn't a literal prophecy. Because they were dispersed around the world for so long, most people said that the nation of Israel would never again return to the land of Israel. They would say, I know that it says that, but it, but it can't be literal. In fact, Encyclopedia Britannica wrote an article in 1911 that said this, the possibility that we can ever again recover the correct pronunciation of ancient Hebrew is as remote as the possibility that a Jewish empire will ever again be established in the Middle East. That's what people thought, right? What's ironic about that statement is that firstly, today they're speaking revived Hebrew, which they didn't do for 2,500 years, and secondly, they're speaking revived Hebrew in the land that they said is impossible for them to ever inhabit again. They are there, it has happened, the nation has been physically restored. Which leads us to the fourth and final point of today's message. Number four, God will bring about the full restoration of the nation of Israel at the appointed time. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 37 and let's read the first 
14 verses. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but you can't miss out any of these, these verses. Some of us know these, this passage quite well. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. If God answers, asks you a question, you say, Lord God, you know the answer. And I answered, and he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four ones, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Get that, church. What he's saying here, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Powerful portion of Scripture, right? Now, when Ezekiel saw this and prophesied this around 586 B.C., the nation just went, went, uh, excuse me, went from bad to worse. The temple got destroyed, the city was burned with fire, and it seemed absolutely impossible. They were dead as a nation, and they were dispersed all over the world. So God says, hey, can these bones live? I mean, death has done its work. What potential could there possibly be in these lifeless, unconnected, and dry bones? Can these bones live? I suppose you could have asked that question in 1947 before 1948. Before the United Nations made the declaration and officially recognized Israel as its own nation. You could have asked this, this question, can these bones live May 15th, 1948? One day after the United Nations recognized Israel. Because a day later, the very next day after statehood, Five Arab nations simultaneously attacked Israel. On that day, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and, and Iraq all flooded to destroy this fledgling nation. Guess what? They didn't win. They're still there. The Jews are still in their land. You could have asked this question in 1967 in the Six-Day War, also known as the Yom Kippur War, where Israel's civilian army was outnumbered 50 to 1. 
50 to 1. Surely at this point you could have asked, can these bones live? Listen, I think the argument is now over as to whether or not these bones will live. But even now, church, you know, as Israel is under attack by Hamas, and it looks like Hezbollah also wants to get involved, which means they might be fighting a three-front war. You could ask, you know, you could ask the question, will these bones live? The same answer applies to every other time this nation has come under attack. They will survive. They will live. Amen? Amen? Because do you know how many empires have come against Israel in its history and survived as an empire? Not one. Ancient Egypt, status, gone. The Philistine nation, status, gone. The Syrian empire, gone. The Babylonian empire, gone. The Greek and Roman empires, gone. The Byzantine empire, the Spanish empire, and even Nazi Germany, gone. You see, you never go against Israel without going against the God of the Bible. You need to know that. You go against Israel and you are going to get yourself in trouble. How do we know that, church? Because in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, he says to him, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So church, let me ask you, can these bones live? They will live. Because number one, God denounces any nation that tries to take possession of the land of Israel. Number two, God defends the land of Israel for his own name's sake. Number three, God declares himself to all the nations through the reestablishment of Israel. And number four, God will bring about the full restoration of the nation of Israel at the appointed time. Now, God promises that will happen one day. It has already happened in part, in that the nation has been physically restored but not yet spiritually. It will happen one day when when nationally the Jewish people will recognize that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Israel in the land today is part fulfillment of this prediction, is not a, a total fulfillment. Because Ezekiel predicted a spiritual restoration, a regeneration spiritually back to God. So you could put it this way, the bones are there, but it's a body awaiting breath awaiting the Ruach, the Spirit of God. Amen? And you may ask, you know what, why doesn't God just do it now and get it all over and done with? Why doesn't God just finish it all now? What's happening in the meantime? Answer, we are. You are. We are living in the church age where God has allowed us as the Gentiles to be grafted in. Amen? Amen? Paul says in Romans chapter 11, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That literally means the full amount of Gentiles have come into the kingdom of God. And so all Israel will be saved. 
and then all Israel will be saved. God has a purpose in letting them experience his blindness. And what is the purpose? We are the purpose. The church is the purpose. He explains it in this chapter that we are the wild olive branch that has been grafted in that, so that we too can grow. Now church, that's a message all on its own, but, but all I can say to that is thank God that he's allowed us to be a part of his redemptive plan. Amen? Church, in closing, you know, we may look at all of what's happened in, in Israel's history and even what's happening right now and say it's impossible for this nation to have survived and continue to survive. We may look around us and think that everything is falling apart, right, when we look at our world. But church, I want to tell you something. Because of the finished work of the cross and because of God's redemptive plan, everything is falling into place. And God's word confirms every single detail. It may look impossible to us, but church, listen, God does the impossible. And if nothing else today, I want you to leave here with the confidence that God does what he says. He is faithful to all his promises. He does what otherwise looks impossible to us, and there is great purpose in what he's doing. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. And what God did for the nation of Israel and is going to do is a picture of what he's done for us. And it is also a harbinger of things still to come. Because on the timeline of events that Ezekiel writes about is a battle of Armageddon and the Millennial Kingdom. Which we'll get to in the rest of the series. And we'll answer the questions of why Israel is so important to God. Why should we keep our eyes on Israel? And then what does it mean in relation to end-time prophetic events. But church, for today, let's give thanks to the Lord that He is faithful to all His promises and that we are a part of His redemptive plan. Can we just thank the Lord for His word this morning? Can we just thank you for who He is?